I hope you and your family had a blessed Christmas celebration and a very happy New Year. Podcast episodes post a week and a half after the date that I preach them, and usually for podcast listeners, this makes very little difference. However, during special occasions like Christmas, it is more obvious that the podcast episodes are behind. Last week's episode was the final Advent sermon that I preached on December the 24th. The following week, December 31st, I had the opportunity to hear a fellow pastor in our community preach, and so I don't have a current sermon for this week's episode. So I pulled one from the archives for you. In 2020, I preached through the book of James. This sermon, originally preached on August the 2nd of 2020, is the third sermon I preached from that book. The sermon is titled, Be Doers of the Word, and it's from James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. I hope it will be a blessing to you. In fact, I hope that by God's sovereign timing, it's, it's perfectly timed for uh, what you need right now. In the next two weeks, I'll be preaching from Psalms, followed by a special sermon for Sanctity of Life Sunday, and then I'm excited to be returning back to 1 Timothy to finish that, that book. Now, without any further ado, here is the sermon, Be Doers of the Word, from James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. This is what the word has to say. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives uh, but deceives his own heart this man's religion is worthless this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our god and father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world so there are some things that when you're confronted with them you, you immediately, um, the, the, your immediate impression is to think that um, it's not a big deal, that it's not um, um, something to really give much attention to because it, it seems to be easy or simple or something that you have already 
accomplished. Now, we see this all the time in my household with my children. We'll say to them something like, did you remember or don't forget? And then we'll give a command after that. And they respond with a respectful, I know. And then they summarily go off and don't do it. I don't understand that dynamic. So there's some things that all of us, when we're confronted with them, we, we don't give it much attention because we think it's easy, simple, or something that we've already accomplished. However, sometimes these things with time and wisdom, what we've thought with our first assumptions to, uh, were easy are proved with time and wisdom to be um, a greater um, reality, a more difficult challenge. What at first seemed like something that would require little or no effort would eventually demonstrate to be much more formidable challenge than you had ever imagined. And I think that's what's happening in this command with chapter one. When I read chapter one of James and he says to us, be doers, not hearers only, my honest first blush approach is, got it. And I suspect that many of us in this room, when we hear that, that's our first approach to it as well. Check. I mean, you're here. You're in the room this morning. You're going to church. You went through all the effort to, to get up and, and gather your family and be in the house. Some of you went to Sunday school this morning. That's a double check. And, and, and so there's a sense among us, well, we're doing it. We're not just hearing it. We're doing it. I believe that this simple command to be doers of the word and not hearers only is much more difficult command to obey and much more costly truth to obey than we at first realize. Now, this is not to say that most believers do not have the desire to live out the word in their lives. I think it would be safe to say that the majority of you this morning have as an honest desire to live out the word in your life. But desire, listen to me carefully, desire alone is not a guarantee of doing. There are a lot of things that I desire that I don't ever get around to doing. Desire is not a guarantee for doing. James recognizes that there, is, there must be constant, conscious, and conspicuous effort made to demonstrate that our faith is more than a facade and is actually what is true and who we are. And, and so I want us to consider this, this passage in these three dynamics of faith, doing faith, practical faith, and pure faith. Now, the doing faith is the foundation, and then the other two sit on top as uh, byproducts and as outgrowths of the doing. So let's begin with what he means by doing faith. And it comes right in the middle of our passage in, in verse 22, 23, 24, 25. So let's just turn our attention to those verses once again. In verse 22, he says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And then he goes on and he says in verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. But once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. James calls us to be doers of the word. Now, what he's getting at here is that doing testifies to believing. Doing testifies to believing. I have often 
said that James's letter is a straightforward teaching on how to practically live out our faith. It's a very practical book. Now, for some of you, you'll appreciate that practical, simple teaching that James has. Others of you will struggle with it a bit. In fact, throughout the years, many have found James very helpful, but, but others have found it very difficult or, 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 hard to under, or hard to appreciate. Among some of the great luminaries of history, Martin Luther struggled with James, and you can appreciate why. He was pushing back against the, the, the erroneous legalism of the Roman Catholic Church. And so when he came to passages like this where James encouraged us to be doers of the Word, he struggled with how that connected with by faith alone. But through it all, James has remained by the sovereign grace of God a testimony not against faith, but how faith is to be expressed in our lives, specifically through works. And what James is getting at in this section of verses, I think, is the foundational truth that all the others rest on in this, in this section. In James chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who, who delude themselves or trick themselves. And in that verse, I think the key word there is prove. That, that, that is that the good works of our life, listen to me carefully, the good works of our life are the evidences of faith. They are the proofs. They are the testimonies of our faith. Now, there are two key understandings to understand the relationship between faith and works. Number one, actions do not save. And secondly, actions testify to salvation. So we must begin here where we say actions do not save. Without faith, it does not matter how great your actions are. If you have not believed in Jesus, you are still dead and dying and condemned in your sin. And so we understand you can be the best church person there ever was. You can read your Bible more faithfully and more intensely than anybody else. You, you can pray as passionately as you can. You can do all the services to the church and be thought of as the greatest believer in the community. But if you've not believed on Jesus, it's worthless. Because the only way to be righteous before God is through faith and forgiveness through Jesus. So James is not in any way pushing back against that. He's not saying that you got to work for faith because faith does not, excuse me, works do not save. That's not where he's going. But he is making the case that actions or works testify to what has happened in your life. Actions testify to salvation. Actions or works testify to what is true about your life. you in your yard go plant an apple tree and that apple tree grows up and it produces beautiful delicious apples for you and your family you would not stand there and look at that apple tree and go boy that apple tree sure is working hard to become an apple tree in, in fact you would never imagine for a minute that somehow if that apple tree got right with Jesus it would turn out to be an orange tree right no, because an apple tree is always going to produce what? Apples, unless it's dead. Well, James's point is very simple. When you've been transformed by the gospel, 
Like an apple tree producing apples, you're going to produce good works. Those good works don't save you no more than an apple tree making apples make it an apple tree. It was already an apple tree from the moment of its birth and its germination from the seed. It was an apple seed, an apple tree. But when it produced apples, it simply proved what it already was. And that's the dynamic. Actions do not save, but actions do testify to what and who you are. Doing the works of faith testifies to the reality, to the reality of the faith in which you have believed. Doing faith begins with this idea of testifying to believing that your good works are your testimony to, testimony to what you have believed. And I think there is a, and there's an underlying dynamic here that, that James is simply saying, listen, faith requires action. I mean, it's a, it requires action. It's, it's, it's contrary to the nature to think that you can believe on Jesus and not have demonstrated works in your life. In every generation, there have been some who take the freedom we have in grace to be an excuse for the absence of works in their lives. Every generation has had those folks. They'll say something like this. They'll say, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And is that not true? Yes. But they'll say that not as a testimony to the glory of God and the power of his salvation. They'll say that as an excuse for why they're continuing to live in sin. I can't help it. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Dear friends, when one has believed on Jesus for salvation through faith, this faith requires, it compels action. This is the point I think James is making in verses 23, 24, and 25 in his illustration of the man who looks on in the mirror. Once, you've been truly, once you have truly believed on Jesus and in faith placed your eternal security in the promises of the gospel, that there is a tangible effect on what you, uh, how you live out your life. There's a demonstration. There's a testimony. There is a difference in your life. Now, there's three areas where I think faith compels action. The first is, it is, that, that, is that actions in your life are motivated by, by truth. What I mean by that is among these would be things like evangelism, church discipline, preaching, fellowshipping with other believers in worship and ministry. Believing Jesus alone saves by its very definition compels you to tell somebody else that they can have salvation in Jesus, does it not? I mean, if you really believe that Jesus alone can save you from the condemnation of eternity in hell, how could you not say that wonderful word to one who is dying and going to hell? Faith compels that action in you. You're not telling somebody about Jesus because you're thinking you're going to earn your way into heaven. You tell somebody about Jesus because you believed in Jesus, that there is hope in heaven. Believing, in, believing sin destroys and Jesus as king compels church discipline that you would, out of love and compassion for your brothers and sisters, work against sin in the body. Believing preaching of the gospel is the power to save and life-giving nourishment for the saints compels us to preach and participate in the hearing of the word proclaimed. Believing the word of God and obeying the commands of Jesus compels faithfulness to the church and its, and its fellowship. The Bible says do not forsake the, the gathering together of the saints. You're not here to earn your salvation. You're here because of your salvation. There's some actions that are motivated by truth. There are other actions that are restrained by love. Some things we do because of faith. There's other things we don't do because of faith. 
Paul spoke not only of his freedom in grace, but he also spoke of his restraint in love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, but take care lest your liberties of, your, of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have, who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things uh, sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he, he, he who is weak is ruined, the brother whose sake Christ, uh, who, for whose sake Christ died. And thus by sinning against the brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, he says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I may not cause my brother to stumble. You know what, James, what Paul is saying? Because he believes on Jesus and he loves the saints, that has a restraining action in his life. Believing in faith in the kingdom of God restrains us in our present freedom for the sake of King Jesus, his kingdom, and weaker saints. Some actions are motivated by truth. Some are restrained by love. And others' are actions are compelled by devotion. Grace sets us free from the law's demands. That is absolutely true. But faith compels us to, to obey and sacrifice out of devotion for Jesus. I would put under that worship, giving, service, submission to leadership and authority. We just a few minutes ago took up an offering, and every now and then I'll have somebody come along that wants to make the argument that because we're under grace, there's no longer a command to, to give the tithe. And my answer always to that is absolutely. In fact, because we're under grace, we ought to give way more than 10% of our income. Somebody say Amen. Because we're no longer giving because we're earning. We're no longer giving because we are commanded. We're giving out of response to grace. And how much is the grace of God who saved you from an eternity of hell worth it to you? Should not the response of a worshipful's heart just say, listen, 10% is not enough. It's not enough. Actions are compelled by devotion, not by law's demands, but by grace's freedom. Oh, dear friends, faith is a testimony. Doing testifies to what you have believed. And, and, and when you have believed, it, is a requir- it creates a requirement of action. In other words, it is, a, it is a testimony of who you are and it is a response that cannot be stopped. And, and lastly, I would say to this that faith saturates everything. It saturates everything. Those who are merely hearers of the word have not had their lives transformed by the word. In, in our vernacular, we, we might say it this way. It went in one ear and it went right out the, the other. Meaning they received it, they heard it, but the word had no impact upon their life. And there are a couple of areas of our lives where the word transforms us. Our minds, our emotions, our heart's desires, and our actions. When you receive the word, it transforms your minds, what you think about, how you think, the, the worldview by which you see the world and how it is controlled. All of that is through the filter of the word of God. Our emotions are transformed. Now, I'll speak about this a little bit more in the next point, but, but faith saturates every level of our mind, our body, and our spirit, and that includes our emotions. What, what is included in there as far as, as far as what we love, what we hate, what angers you, all of that is to be saturated by what you believe and have trusted in Jesus for. And even our desires are transformed. What you long for, what you work for, what you give your life to is transformed by believing faith. 
James is saying that our actions are transformed. What we, what we do is dependent upon what we think, what we feel, what we desire. And when these things have been transformed by faith, it is inconceivable that our actions would not also be transformed. It's, it's a simple point. That when everything in your life has been saturated by the gospel, when everything in your life has been saturated by faith, then the testimony of your actions will be the evidence of that truth in your life. Doing faith. Faith changes what you do. Now, there's a couple of other things that I think rest on that simple truth, and that is, first, this idea of practical faith. And, and, and I'll push this back up to the beginning of the passage that we read, verses 19, 20, and 21. Here James says, my beloved brethren, let everybody be quick to, to hear and slow to speak. Now, by the way, if you checked out, that's some good practical advice. Somebody say amen. Brother, that'll keep you out of some serious trouble. Just take a pause before the, before the tongue starts wagging. Be quick to, be slow to speak, quick to listen. Slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Practical faith. When you believed on Jesus the testimony of doing is, in, in one sense, practical in that you and everything about your life is ruled by the Word of God. There's a reason why so many people struggle with James, and it's this point. Most are very comfortable with a discussion of being transformed by the gospel as long as the discussion does not get too specific or too close to home. The old expression comes up here, preacher, you done gone from preaching to meddling. One of our dearest friends at First Baptist Adel came to me later after I'd preached a sermon, and apparently during that sermon I, had, I was talking about things that were negatively impacting the faithfulness of our, our church members' attendance and how they had allowed some secular things to take greater priority than worship. And, and I, and I guess I had gone through some list of some things, and I talked about how some folks had allowed um, ball, their kids um, uh, playing in sports, to, to take a greater precedent over, over worship. And, and I talked about how um, hobbies and camping and hunting and all those sort of things. And, and my dear friend came up to me, and she said, you know, while you were preaching, um, I was with you. In fact, I even shouted amen a couple of times until you got to that business of going to the beach for the weekend. They had a beach house at Fernandina. And she said, I didn't appreciate it that, at that point anymore after that. You could have stopped short of that, and I'd have been happy. We, we get that, don't we? We're all about preaching and amen. And, I, you know, I used to hear people say, man, you stepped on my toes. And I would think, I didn't step hard enough because if you're still proud about it, I didn't get, I didn't get to the point of it. We like it as long as it's hard preaching against somebody else's sin. But when it gets too close to ours, we get a little uptight. Verses 19, 20, and 21, James is making the point that the one who has been transformed by the word is ruled and controlled by the word. Being ruled and controlled by the word is in contrast to being ruled and controlled by at least two things that I think he's pointing at here, emotions and personal will. Being ruled by emotions and personal will are natural and normal among the secular world. And so if you don't know Jesus today, those are the things that rule you is emotions and personal will. 
Those who are ruled by emotions will, will excuse their out-of-control behavior by saying they were angry. You've heard people say, say they'll, they'll say the horriblest thing, a woundful thing, and they'll say, well, I hate that I said that, but I was just mad. As if being angry is an excuse for out-of-control behavior. I have heard unfaithful spouses excuse their sinful betrayal by saying they couldn't help falling in love with their mistress and falling out of love with their spouse. They're saying with that they are being controlled by their emotions. Those who are ruled by personal will are unconcerned with the righteousness of God. Their, their ultimate concern is what they desire, what they want. And that's why when James gives these, these practical things, he says, first of all, be, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Because out of controlled emotions of man in his, in his, in his personal will and his unredeemed, transformed self, uh, untransformed self is a terrible way to live a life because it's uncontrolled. It'll lead you in all kinds of mess. And he says the anger of man does not, does not achieve the righteousness of God. We must be ruled by truth and obedience. Those who have truly been transformed by believing faith are no longer ruled by uncontrolled emotions and selfish desires and personal will. The evidence of one who has been transformed by believing faith is that every part of their life is ruled by the word of God. Now James points here to two practical expressions of this truth, uncontrolled anger and uncontrolled sin. Now, let's be clear. I want to be careful here. This is not to say that a true believer never gets angry. Amen. Doesn't even mean that a true believer never loses their cool from time to time. Now, we understand that when we do, we don't achieve the righteousness of God, but it's not to say that that has ever happened to you then, then somehow you're, you're not saved. In fact, the problem with saying that is that would disqualify almost everybody in this room and everyone in this room that has un, young children. Somebody give me an amen on that one. Because <laughs> if you've got young kids in your house, they will press you to a moment that uncontrolled anger will happen at some point. And this is not to say that a true believer never struggles with sin. Even a continuous struggle with a particular sin. This would disqualify everyone in this room. Listen carefully. The issue here is not the presence of these things in your life, but the authority of these things in your life. It's not the question of the presence of these things. All of us in this moment have failures where we get angry, maybe even lose control. All of us in this room struggle with sin, some of those sins have been around for a long time and there's a fight and there's a struggle. So it's not the question of the presence. The question is the authority of these things in your life. Are you ruled by your emotions or do you obey God even when you don't feel like it? Are you ruled by your emotions or are you ruled by God's word and you obey God's word even when you don't feel like it? That's the question of authority. Does sin remain unrestrained in your life or is God's Word and Holy Spirit constantly working to remove and the old word would be mortify or to kill sin in your life? 
No doubt if we were to give, all give a faithful testimony today, we could all identify areas of sin in our life. The question is not that. The question is, are you working against that? Is God's Holy Spirit and Word pushing back against that in your life? Or have you given away and given in to unrestrained, uncontrolled sin? The testimony of true faith is the Word of God reigns and rules over these things. Dear believer, in a practical sense, there's a lot of things you will do today as a testimony of faith that you don't feel like doing. And dear believer, in every one of your lives, there may be sin present, but there ought to be also an active, living testimony of God working against that sin in your life. One last thing here, and that is pure faith. So at the very end of the passage, James says to us in verse 26 and 27, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, there he goes back to talking again, but deceives his own heart, this man's religious, religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, when I read these two verses, what, what, what rings in my heart is a passage from the Old Testament from the, from the prophet Micah. Where in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says this. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I think that's the idea that James is getting at here, that we ought, to, we ought to do justly and to love mercy. In the final verse of chapter 1, he gives this definition of pure and undefiled religion. Now, now you and I tend to avoid the word religion because it, it can be used for, for beliefs other than biblical truth. But our uneasiness with the word is not with the word itself. Our uneasiness is with the impure um, uh, and defiled definition of the word. But James here is speaking of what pure, what true religion is. And he gives two elements of undefiled faith. Number one, he says we ought to visit orphans and widows in in their distress. And we ought to keep unstained by the world. I believe these two elements parallel well with what the prophet Micah declared that God required of us to do justly, to love mercy. James tells us to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Now, these two demographics in the day of James were the most vulnerable and often subjects of unfair, abusive, and, and um, a treatment, and their suffering was destitute. They really had no way of, of escaping. And his command here is to, is, is to, to visit is, is not... What we might use is the word visit. He's not saying what you ought to do is on Tuesdays and Thursdays go by and have a cup of coffee and visit some orphans and and visit a few widows. That may be fine, but that's not what he's getting at here. His command to visit in their time of distress is to recognize their suffering, to see them, to work to protect them, to work to provide for them, to defend them, to support them. People who have no political power, economic power, social influence are often in every generation, in every time, legally abused. 
because no one speaks up for them. They're often treated with disregard and and contempt because no one is concerned for their well-being. This is the natural way of the world. That was normal in James' day. It's normal in our day. And until Jesus comes back, it'll be normal in everyone's day. The testimony of true faith is that justice is given to those who have no voice or political power, who can do absolutely nothing for you. The testimony of true faith is that mercy is shown to those who can do nothing for you and who have been overlooked by the world. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Humility before God recognizes your sin and God's glory. The one who has been truly saved from sin by the blood of Jesus will both rejoice in salvation and long not to add any new suffering to Jesus. The one who has been truly saved will not boast in their own righteousness, but will humbly acknowledge that all glory and honor is due to God alone. So what does in practicality it look like to walk humbly with God? James says, put away evil. Pursue righteousness. It's a testimony of faith that you're walking humbly with God, that you are putting away evil, pursuing righteousness. The name Robert Courtney may not ring a bell with you. But if you lived in Kansas City, you probably knew his name very well. Robert Courtney was a son of an itinerant preacher, traveling preacher. He was a a well-respected deacon at the, at the Northland Cathedral Assembly of God Church in Kansas City. He was a very successful uh, pharmacist in the area. From the outside, he looked like a, an upstanding citizen. People really respected him, loved him. He was always dressed well. He presented himself well. To, to his patients that came into his pharmacy, he... Um, He just seemed to go the extra mile to take care of them, to provide for them. In their economic distress, when they couldn't afford some of the very expensive medications, he would often uh, cut them a deal or provide them for them, sort of a workaround insurance and all those sort of things. And if you'd ask almost anybody about him, they would have said he was a he was a a really upstanding, well-respected, godly man. He he sang in the choir in his church, um, and he was generous. The the church that uh, he was a member of and a deacon of and a choir member of was was building a, was starting a building campaign, and it must have been a pretty sizable one. He offered, he, he pledged a gift of a, a personal gift out of his for one million dollars to the campaign. That's a nice gift, is it not? By the way, we just put a roof on. If you want to make a camp, uh, contribution of one million dollars, I'll take that today. From the outside looking in, Robert Courtney seemed to be a good church member, a trusted professional. But in 1998, some people began to notice discrepancies between the amount of cancer drugs he bought and the number of prescriptions he filled. There was an investigation, but it came to nothing, and life went on. But after some time, a couple of years actually, a suspicious nurse ordered some of those very powerful cancer drugs. They have to be compounded that Courtney had compounded. 
A suspicious nurse ordered some of those, and instead of delivering them to a patient, she first took them and had them tested. And to her horror and shock, they discovered that the drugs that he had given them were diluted by, by half and by significant portions. It so shocked the investigators that they thought there is no way that any person would do such a horrible thing. And so they ordered more drugs. And every time they ordered drugs from Courtney, they discovered that he was diluting them. When the investigation finally happened and they raided his offices, they found that he was, he was cutting drugs like cancer drugs that are extremely expensive where he could make a tremendous, tremendous profit by buying a drug for one price, diluting it, and then selling it for an expanded price. But he was also doing the same thing for drugs that cost $5 and were earning him nickels. No telling how many people were harmed thinking that they were receiving a drug that was supposed to bring to them health and healing, they're actually receiving not much more than saline and drugs that had been removed of all their potency. He went to jail, 30-year sentence. Just this past month, uh, because of his own health concerns and COVID-19, he was up for being released early from prison. And you can imagine the people there in Kansas City absolutely reacted with a, a visceral response. There's no way this terrible man can be let out of prison. Now, the thing about a story about a man like Courtney is it's pretty easy to see once the, once the facade of what he looked like was, was pulled back and the reality of his life is revealed, it's pretty easy to see Here's a man that was living a fake life. Here's a man whose righteousness was not true. His righteousness was like the drugs he was selling, all promise but no power. People like Robert Courtney are easy con to condemn. It's easy to look at them and, and with outrage and say, yes, that's a wicked person. But dear friends, I want to make the case that Robert Courtney is an egregious example who looked outwardly righteous, but who was inwardly given over to wickedness. And, and because it's an egregious example, it's easy to recognize. But I think the more dangerous reality is those who have the ability to, 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 to settle in for a comfortable outward expression of faith, but who live their lives never allowing that outward expression of faith to get anywhere near the interior, interior reality of their own heart like a person who looks in the mirror and walks away deceived by who they are, forgetting the reality of their natural face. Dear friends, that is the more dangerous reality. How do we know? How do we know the reality of faith in our life? James says, be doers and not hearers only. When we believe, take God at his word, allow the implanted word that saves our souls into our lives and our hearts and our minds, it transforms everything. And the testimony of that transformation is that we're not doing to be saved, but we are doing because we have been saved.
Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.